Welcome back to Venture Studio, the podcast where your host, Dave Lerner, entrepreneur, angel investor in 70 plus companies and director of entrepreneurship at Columbia University, interviews the angel investors and venture capitalists who make up New York City's entrepreneurial ecosystem. I am your producer, Kevin Weeks. All of our shows are available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Google Play. And make sure you subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Venture Studio. Any feedback or five-star reviews are always much appreciated. And now let's kick it to Dave to introduce this week's episode. Dave? Our next guest is Arne Hallerocker, an investor at FJ Labs. We learned that FJ Labs is certainly one of the most prolific investors in New York City, if not the world, averaging about one deal completed per week. Founded by Fabrice Grinda and Jose Marin, they have a portfolio of 380 companies, already have 109 exits, an absolutely stunning track record. We also learn about their incubation program and internship programs, which attract some of the most talented business school students in the country. And if you're intrigued by the evolution of internet-enabled marketplaces, well, you've arrived at the right place. Arne and his colleagues at the fund are absolute black belts in this area. He takes us through this evolution and demonstrates a deep understanding of all the nuances of investing in marketplaces globally. It was an absolute education for me. I hope it is for you. Okay, let's head on up to the Venture Studio office. In office, baby. It's great to have you on. How are you? Doing great, Dave. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be on the show. It's great to have you. Um, It's easiest to just dive into FJ Labs because, you know, I think a lot of people in the New York tech ecosystem, uh, they know Fabrice Grinda, does an enormous amount of investing, but I don't think a lot of people realize uh, the scope and scale of the organization known as FJ Labs. What is it? Sure. More than happy to give some context on that. So as you as you say, a lot of people are familiar with Fabrice Grinda. Uh, a lot of people are familiar with Jose Marin. I'll give you just a very quick background on them before I go into FJ Labs because they are obviously very important to the firm being the F and the J right. uh, of FJ Labs. <laughs> right. So Fabrice Grinda is a serial entrepreneur originally from France um, he has built a number of companies, and he's had more than $300 million in exits over the years. Uh, he's one of the founders of OLX, which is essentially Craigslist for the emerging world, 40 different markets, 300 million monthly unique users. And before that, he built essentially eBay for France, which he sold, and he built a wireless media company called Singy, which he also sold. Yeah. And... Jose has a similar background. He has more than $200 million in exits. He has built a number of companies. He has been very active on the incubation side over a number of years. And through all of this activity, both Fabrice and Jose built a name for themselves. People started approaching them, asking them for advice, asking them to invest in companies. And then gradually, they became very active angel investors. So over the past two decades or so, Fabrice and Jose have invested in more than 380 companies. Wow. And then in the space of the last, I would say, three years, 
this got formalized into what is today FJ Labs. So FJ Labs is a combination of a family office for Fabrice and Jose, where they invest their own money, uh, but it's essentially a venture capital firm where we have a big LP out of Europe and we invest a lot of entrepreneurs and investors to invest alongside us as well. So we are now managing the entire portfolio of Fabrice and Jose, and we are doing their current investing. So we now have 220 active investments in the portfolio. Hmm. We are very active investors. So last year we did 66 investments. We placed $52 million across those. Wow. And this year we have actually just passed that milestone. So I checked the numbers today, and we have so far this year done 70 investments. Wow. wow. So we have a very solid pace, um, and there's a lot of activity. And as you say, I think a lot of people are very familiar with Fabrice and Jose, but because FJ Labs has come up as an entity in the last few years, our brand is not fully established yet. Yeah. Um, and, and that I'm just doing the math here. I mean, you are literally doing six to seven deals a month, basically. Is that yes, fair to we're say? We're doing a little more than a deal a week <laughs> okay. uh, throughout the entire year. Amazing. Okay. It's occurring to me. I knew it was prolific, and I often say it to, to people who, who may not know the scope of it, but now I'm, I'm getting the real numbers. You, you may be the most prolific uh, investing organization in the world, at least in, in the states that I'm aware of. That that's I don't know anyone who's doing one deal a week. <laughs> so I don't have the data to really determine if that statement is accurate. Yeah. I know that we are definitely a very active investor. Yeah. Um, and we're definitely one of the most active investors in the New York ecosystem for sure. that I know. For sure. Uh, if we're the most inv- active investor in the world, that uh, I don't really know. Um, so, But this also comes with very, very solid results. So if we look at the portfolio that Fabrice and Jose have built over the years, uh, we've had 109 exits, combination, of course, of positive and negative exits, uh, but with a very, very healthy return of almost 6x money on invested capital. Mm. Um, so we've had very, very strong returns in the portfolio as well. Yeah. So it's not just a matter of doing a large number of investments and not really caring about the returns. We have a very solid process that I think enables us to pick a good portfolio of companies coming from the expertise that we've chosen to focus on over the years, which is marketplaces primarily. Yeah. And, and I really want to dive into marketplaces uh, later in our conversation. Yeah. A huge portfolio, tremendous track record. Uh, what give us a sense of the stages, the check size uh, and the sector. Yeah. That, that you guys are looking at. Absolutely. Happy to. So we like to say that we are stage agnostic and global investor. Uh, So to a lot of people, that sounds like we do anything anywhere uh, and there's no, not really any focus. Um, That is obviously not the case. So, I mean, 
if you look at the number of investments that we do, we tend to focus mostly on seed and series A in terms of the number of investments that we do. If you look at the deployed capital, it skews a little bit later because we do occasional later stage deals where we deploy bigger tickets. So if you look at our seed and series A investing, we will deploy $400,000 on average in a seed round. Mm-hmm. We will deploy 750000 to about a million dollars in an A round. In B rounds, we tend to place about $2 million. And then as we get later than that, it becomes very much a case-by-case. Case-by-case. Mm-hmm. So, so to give you a sense of that, last year the biggest ticket that we did was a $10 million F round. So we do actually play across the entire stage. Uh, but most of our activity, as I mentioned, is in the seed and Series A. And then in terms of geography, we invest about 70% in the U.S., 20% in Europe, and about 10% in the rest of the world. And outside of the U.S., we tend to focus on the big markets. So in Europe, that means we mostly invest in the U.K., in France, Germany, and Spain. Mm-hmm. We also do a lot in Sweden, actually, because for some reason the Swedish ecosystem is a very successful one, uh, despite not being a very big mm-hmm. market. Mm. And then outside of Europe, we invest primarily in India, China, Brazil, uh, and we've done a few in South Korea as well. Uh, yeah. But again, it's mostly the big markets that is our focus outside of the U.S. I see. I see. Um And then I think it's also important to note that part of the reason for our high pace is that we are co-investors. So we do not lead rounds. Hmm. We wait for a lead investor. We follow on their terms. We rely to a large extent on their due diligence. And we let them take the board seats. Hmm. And this enables us to do a large number of investments with a fairly small team without becoming competitive with the funds who want to lead the rounds or who want to reach a certain ownership percentage, which we don't. Um, so that gives us the opportunity to have regular conversations with a lot of these VCs and show them what we're looking at. They show us what they are looking at, and we get a very good perspective on what's moving in the market, especially within our expertise of market. Fantastic. Yeah, I've noticed that over the years, like almost every great deal um, I come across, I see <laughs> whether I'm involved or not, I notice that uh, you guys get an allocation. It's, and I always wonder, I'm like, how the hell did they do that? Now I'm getting it. Okay. So you play nice. Yeah. You play nice with the VCs. You have great relationships. They appreciate your expertise. So they f- they're f- filling out a round. They want you, you guys involved. Absolutely. And we also put in a big effort in maintaining and building those relationships. So we have regular conversations with a lot of the top VCs. Um, and they respect our expertise in marketplaces. So whenever they are looking at marketplaces... <laughs> They typically tend to ask our opinion or invite us in to have a look at the company and talk to the founders just to get a sense of our perspectives on the marketplace dynamics. 
Um, and that has usually been a very good strategy for us to get into these teams. Right. right. And, you know, for, for people listening uh, who want to dive deeper, you can go to the FJ Labs website and look at the portfolio section. It's, it's uh, a murderer's row of companies. Um, and and I, I mean, Adore Me, Flexport, Palantir, Notel, FanDuel, Uber. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. Right? Am I am I missing any a, uh, a huge ones? I mean, it's well, there's a lot of very very impressive companies in the portfolio. And to those of you who do go to our website to check it out, I encourage you to play around with the filters on the top. When you come to the website, you will only see uh, a curated list of companies, uh, but the entire portfolio is there. And I mean, of the more recent ones, I think it's worthwhile bringing up Eve. Uh, which is uh, essentially the Casper of the UK. Oh. They did an IPO in the spring, and uh, we haven't actually realized that one, but uh, it's looking to be an absolutely fantastic return for us. Uh, Jas and the team there have done an amazing job of executing. So there's a lot of very, very solid companies in the portfolio that we are very proud of. Modestly put. Congratulations on that. Um, okay. So, uh, now you 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 have told me in the past uh, that you you have really two sides of the business. You're not only uh, investing in companies, but you're also building companies. Can can you tell us a little about that whole side of the of the program? Absolutely, would love to. So part of the part of the thing that happens when you have a venture capital firm that is founded by two serial entrepreneurs is that we get itchy about building companies. (laughs) So we love investing. Um, We love talking to all of these amazing founders and see what they are doing and learn from them. But we also want to build our own things. So every year we build one to two companies. And the way we think about this is that we want to attract the best possible founders. So every spring uh, or every winter, early spring, Mm -hmm. we go to the top business schools in the U.S. We go to Columbia. Uh, We found some amazing people at Columbia. So we're going to keep going back there. We were actually at (laughs) Columbia yesterday talking to the first years, trying to see if we could lure some of them to come to us. Nice. So we go to Columbia. We go to MIT, to Harvard, to Stanford. This year we're adding Wharton. Mm. And we try to find the best, most entrepreneurially minded students that we can. And then we invite two or three of those to come join us during the summer between their first and second year. And during that summer, they will work with us full time on the investing side, learning how we work with deal flow, how we source companies, how we evaluate companies take them through our heuristics um, and teach them the craft essentially of doing early stage investing. And then we try to let those of them who want to spend time with our early stage incubation companies as well. So we will split the summer 50-50 between investing and an operational role in an early stage company. Hmm. And then when the summer is over, they join us part-time and They work with us throughout their second year, 
in the fall, they work with us on the investing side. And then early spring, we have a session where we kick off our incubation. So we get the whole team together. Everybody brings a list of ideas that they think are interesting to the conversation. They pitch it to the group. And at this point, I think we have a list of about 80 or 90 ideas that we think make sense at some level or other. And then after this session, the MBAs um, start going through the list, looking for ideas that they are passionate about, that they want to build a company around. And they start digging into that. And we do bi-weekly incubation sessions with the whole team where they present their progress on this idea the model that they think makes sense, the problems that they have discovered, the people they have to talked mm. to over the days. Mm. Yeah. And then we give them feedback on that idea. And we help them refine that uh, project during the spring. And when they graduate, they become CEOs of these incubator ah. companies. And just because I know a bunch of students are no doubt listening, this is this is an incredible opportunity to tell people this um, it's the folks that emerge from the end of this program as CEOs of the company, they have gone through the entire process you've just described. They've come in uh, in the summer uh, between first and second year. That's the entry point, yes? That is the and, and you've put them through all this training, so they understand the dynamics of investing, and they've got some startup experience, and only then do you kind of work them into the ideas you guys have come up with over the years yes absolutely okay so that is the funnel so people come in in the late spring between or the late spring of their first year and then they go through all of that training all of that work together with us because we think it's incredibly important when you're building a company that you are very familiar with your investors and that your investors are very familiar with you so we're essentially building a long-term relationship during that time. And then once they find that idea and they're ready to pull the trigger, we are with them. We put the first money into the company, but we still do it in a way that they maintain a substantial ownership in the company because we want to attract the best entrepreneurs. It's more important to us to attract the best people than for us to own majority of the company like some models choose to do yes okay. we think it's better for all parties uh that the deal is fair to both sides because then we get the best executors. that's fantastic that's a great nuanced point that that uh, should should be said because there's a lot of uh a number of incubation programs where you know the quote-unquote incubator emerges and, and they own you know 80 80 <laughs> percent of the company <laughs> and uh exactly and it hurts your ability to invest, get traditional investors, and to keep the founders incentivized and, and the other problems that cascade from the bad corporate structure. So, um, no, thanks for making that point. Um, okay, so, like, this is actually the season that uh, people who are at these schools should be paying attention if they want to get involved and try to apply to, to sort of become a part of this cohort. What's the best way to do that? So, as I mentioned, we are now in the process of going to these top business schools. So, we were at Columbia yesterday. We're going to go to MIT and HBS in about the next month. Same with Wharton. 
were coming to Stanford in January. And anyone who are in these cohorts are more than welcome to reach out to me. Um, you can send me an email uh, at arne at fjlabs.com and we'll include you in that funnel. Uh, and we really encourage anybody who has entrepreneurial aspirations and who are going through these top business goals to apply to this program. Fantastic. Okay. Um, very cool program. Uh, great opportunity for those of you who are interested. Um, and they really, by the way, they really take care of you. They actually pay you unlike a lot of these other places. So let me, uh, shift gears. I think, I think we've covered the two sides of the FJ lab uh, approach investing in, and company incubation. And of course you're cultivating talent too. I mean, th this is also educational. Um, you are known for massive expertise in marketplaces. Um, if you look at the portfolio of the years and you know, Fabrice and you know, he's known as a, a marketplace specialist, Jose, I'm, I'm in a few of these companies. I'm lucky to be in a few of these companies with, with you guys over the years. Um, We're happy to have you there with us. <laughs> it's been great. So the question is, you know, why marketplaces? What is going on? You, you've kind of unbundled marketplaces to a certain degree, and, and there's tremendous variety and nuances within this. Why don't you just tell us how you think about uh, the whole landscape? Absolutely. We'd be happy to. So part of the reason that we are so excited about marketplaces is obviously that we've built a number of them over the years. And the reason that we've built them over the years is that in the early days of the internet, this was a model that opened up to a much larger extent than what it had in the past, just because you could match more people over bigger distances than what was possible in the offline. Mm. And... This led to an evolution of marketplaces. So it started out with the online or with the classifieds markets that you found in newspapers before moving online. So this is essentially the Craigslist model. Mm. So you take the simple matching, people put a listing online saying that they want to sell, they want to transact, they want to meet someone, uh, some kind of an offer that is listed on the platform, which is why this is usually called a listing-based model. And then you have the other side, the demand side, reaching out to these people, you get a conversation going, you agree on a price, you agree on when and where this transaction will take place. And it's a pretty high friction model uh, because it's what we call double commit. Both sides need to engage in the conversation and you need to agree on all the terms, uh, and you frequently have to meet up in person to make it happen. Mm -hmm. That said, it's a fantastic model if you win the market. So the top classified sites will reach maybe 70% of the internet population in a country on a monthly basis. And if you win the market, it's almost impossible to displace you because the network effects of this are so strong. I see. Um, and that enables you to charge uh, or to make a lot of money, mostly through advertising and visibility features, for instance, putting your ad at the top of the page or these types of things with 60, 70% of it on margins. 
So it's a fantastic business, but there's still a lot of friction in it. And these classifieds or horizontal classifieds models are usually generalist sites. So you can buy and sell anything, your bike, your car, your, yeah, whatever you want to sell, your sewing machine, you can sell on these horizontal classified sites. And then what typically happens is you get a verticalization of these. So, and it always starts with the same three, the top three big categories, cars, homes and jobs and 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 let me interrupt you briefly because i want to make every, i'm sure everyone's on on point with you by the way i love this you're giving the you're starting with the history and the background and how these marketplaces developed on the this is beautiful i'm, I'm very excited uh when you say the marketplace verticalizes what do you mean by that so what i mean by that is in opposition to the horizontal or generalist marketplace where you can buy and sell anything with anyone, Mm -hmm. the vertical marketplaces focus on a category of goods. So in the case of, for instance, eBay Motors, it's a marketplace that focuses exclusively on cars. Um, In the case of real estate marketplaces, they are focusing on transaction of homes. In jobs marketplaces, they are focusing on helping people and helping employers find each other. Uh, so they focus on getting people employment. One vertical. That's their specialty. One vertical at a time. Yeah, yes. got it. Uh, and that is the classic transition you see. You always see the generalist come in first. It's a horizontal platform. And then you see the verticalization with the three big verticals. Got Cars, it. homes, and jobs. Got it. Um, and then those are still listing-based models usually. So you list that you want to sell your car, somebody reaches out to you, you agree on the terms, and there's a transaction. And then after that, you got the vertical transactional models. So you got the eBase, where payment happens on platform, communication happens on platform, everything is facilitated in a very good way tailored to the specific transaction. So you get availability of dates on the platform. You get a lot of pictures of the home. You get a listing of the number of rooms. Is there a washer dryer? All of these types of things are features that it doesn't really make sense to put on a listing-based model in the same vertical because it doesn't really help you move volume. Whereas in a transactional model, it gives you a fantastic advantage. So you've seen it with Airbnb for... Uh, short-term properties. You've seen it with tickets, where you, for instance, get a picture of the venue so that you can choose where in the venue you will sit when you buy a ticket. Mm. You could buy tickets on Craigslist. That's not a problem. But you don't get the information. You don't get the guarantees that your ticket is authentic and that you will get reimbursed if it turns out to be fraudulent. Yes. So these additional features make it possible to build a more niche marketplace um, and still take market share away from the incumbent that has higher liquidity. Got it. And then I would say the final step that we've seen over the last few years, where some have been successful, others have not, is what we call an end-to-end vertical transactional marketplace. So 
that takes care of the entire transaction from A to Z. So to give you an example of that, one of our incubated companies is a company called Instacarro in Brazil, which enables a consumer to take a picture of their car, send it to the service, get a price estimate, and then if they like that price estimate, they take the car to one of our inspection points. They are there for about 30 minutes. We inspect the car. Mm -hmm. We give them a final offer, and if they want to take that offer, they get cash immediately. So the entire process happens on the platform. Very limited friction for the consumer. No concern in terms of who am I selling this to? Or am I going to get robbed if I show up in this random location to try to sell my car? So it's taking away a lot of the concerns and friction. And obviously, you pay a bit of a price for that peace of mind. Uh, but, but it's a very strong model. And it, so and that's kind of the, yeah, the evolution, evolution of marketplaces yeah. that we've seen. Ma- amazing. Um, increasing sophistication, unbundling, going from the broad categories, generalists to specialists or niches, uh, verticals, as you say, technology being added, photos, uh, details, right? Uh, continuing right. adding value along that sort of decision chain, and transaction chain and every just continually enabling it, enabling it, removing as much friction as possible. This is the evolution of marketplaces that you guys are a huge part of. Um, Absolutely. Okay, and so that's sort of the history and background. And then within that, are there more nuances? Are there more subcategories, genres, whatever you want to call it? Well, go ahead. Absolutely. So we have a few investment themes, I would Mm. say, within all of this. So just to give you a tiny little bit of extra piece of framework before I dive into those, when we're looking at these types of marketplaces, there's a few different things that we look at. So for instance, is this a high frequency transaction or is this a low frequency transaction? So think for instance, a home. A home is not something you buy frequently. Whereas Uber, for instance, is something that you will probably do on a fairly regular basis. Yes. And when you're looking at a high-frequency marketplace, it's okay to have lower average order values. So each transaction doesn't have to be big if there's a lot of recurrence. Uh, Whereas if it's a high average order value, it's okay to have low frequency because each transaction is bigger and you you can make more money on each transaction. What we never want to see is obviously uh, low frequency, low average order value, because then you'll never be able to Uh, make any money. I see. And then we also look at what are the types of features that the market you're going after actually need. So if you think back to the verticalization and going transactional in a vertical, if people don't need any special features for what it is you're building, it doesn't really make sense to build a transactional marketplace of something where there already is a listing-based marketplace that covers your category. Because then you can just go to Craigslist uh, or go to eBay Motors and buy what you need. There needs to be a reason for your vertical transactional model to make sense. 
Let's dive in just for a second to make sure it's crystal clear with everyone. Um, it can't be a nice to have. It, it it sort of has to be a meaningful need. You're saying for for this rich rich feature set. What what's an example of maybe a category that you would stay away from? Where it, it, it might sound good in theory, but you guys understand that we really don't need that. So I'm not sure I would say there are specific categories that mm. don't make sense. What I would say is that if you're looking to build a marketplace and you look at the market and you see that, um, so take for instance smartphones. Yeah. You know that there's a lot of smartphone transactions on Craigslist. So you think, hey, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I will try to build a vertical marketplace for used smartphones. Uh, so far, so good. Mm -hmm. What I would think through when you're going through that process is what are the features that people need when they sell their smartphones that I can add that don't exist in Craigslist? Because if what you're doing is only trying to build Craigslist but for smartphones and it's the same experience as on Craigslist... You're never going to get off the ground. And the reason for that is that every marketplace depends on liquidity. You need to have enough buyers. You need to have enough sellers. Otherwise, you can list your phone and nobody is ever going to reach out to you to buy it. Uh, or you go on the platform to buy a specific version of a phone and nobody is listing it. So I would just think through... What is it that sets you apart from the player that already has ah, liquidity Yes. in order to help you to get to that same point? Perfect, perfect. Okay. There are some themes that we are really liking. Um, so traditionally, a lot of the marketplaces that have been built over the last years have been consumer-focused. So they've either been consumer-to-consumer -consumer marketplaces. So think, for instance, Craigslist, where consumer lists a bicycle and another consumer buys it. Uh, or they have been B2C. So think eBay, where you have a merchant who is selling electronics and consumers buy it. Mm. What we haven't seen a lot of until fairly recently is business-to-business -business marketplaces. Oh. Um, and that is actually a fantastic space because... What we look for when we're looking for marketplace models is fragmented demand, fragmented supply, and broken communication, essentially. So that takes the shape of old ways of communication, uh, people communicating via telephone or via faxes instead of online efficient communication mm, means. Yes. Or opaque pricing where you don't know what the right price for your car would be. Uh, yes. Is the car going to be priced very differently if there's 10,000 miles on my car relative to the one I see on the website? Is the dent in my car door going to be a $500 reduction in price or a $1,000 reduction in price? If you don't have a good sense of what, you're, what the item you're selling is worth, then it becomes harder to transact. Mm -hmm. So... In a lot of traditional businesses, you have a lot of these 
these elements. Yes. There's a lot of communication and facts. There's a lot of old computer systems that are based on MS-DOS. Uh, there's a lot of relationship-based, uh, both pricing and communication. And marketplaces can do a great job in solving a lot of these problems. You can introduce better communication, lower friction, price transparency, and you can get much better competitive pricing just because you can connect more buyers and more sellers through an efficient platform. Wow. On, on top of that, you usually have higher recurrence. People buy the things that they need for their business on a higher recurrent basis than consumers typically buy, for instance, a bicycle. You have higher average order values, um, and that gives a fantastic mix for building a marketplace. And a great example there, of course, is flexible. Oh my God, I was just I was just going to say that. You know, it's like you hear something like that, and like the minute you start talking about it, this monster comes out of the sea. You know, and exactly. it's called Flexport. It's like a bullseye for that. And we're both we're both in that. That's great. And I understand Ryan Peterson comes to your class every spring. He, he does. Right? He's fantastic. He, he's he's uh, yeah. one of a kind. <laughs> he absolutely is. So that's a perfect example of what we're talking about when we're talking about business-to-business marketplaces. And, and, you know, let's take a moment just to describe what Flexport did for folks listening because it's one of the fastest-growing companies in the world. Let's, let's be yes. frank. They, they have done amazingly well. So let me just quickly describe what you would have to do before Flexport. So let's say that you own a store in Manhattan and you are producing goods in Shenzhen in China. Uh, in order for you to send those goods from the factory to your store in Manhattan, you may have to work with six, seven, eight different parties to have those goods shipped. So you need to get it shipped from the factory to maybe a local warehouse uh, or to the port. You need a company to take it from that port to the next more central distribution point uh, and onwards through this chain until you get to a distribution warehouse maybe in California. You need to ship it across the US to another warehouse in New York and then from that warehouse to your store. And for each of this, each of these steps, you may need to check with a few different suppliers. You need to call them. They will maybe fax you an offer, uh, and then you need to compare wow. the pricing. Yeah. And you don't have any data on how this flows through. You don't have any transparency, and it's a really painful process. Yes. Uh, and then Flexport comes along, and they build a layer on top that takes on a lot of that complexity underneath and makes it much easier for the consumer to, to order shipments from, for instance, Shenzhen to their store in Manhattan, see where things are moving, and get transparency on pricing. Right. right. Amazing. And, 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 and it's a huge undertaking. But boy, if you can, it's a <laughs> if you can do no, that, no. you have a monster company on your hands somehow. I mean, this is a lot of pain and centuries of habits that you're undoing. Uh, the the old bills of lading you hear from 
you know, old books, that still is the way it's been done. And yes. Wow. Um, and, you know, freight forwarding, massive trillion dollar category businesses. Wow. It's, it's a huge category. Uh, and there is so much improvement that can be done in that process, which is what Flexport is taking on. But to your point, it's not an easy process. No. You need to work with all of these players that are old school, offline, and you have, have to help bring them into a more online, modern way of working and communicating. Right. Stunning the example. The price at the end of the road is definitely worth it. <laughs> wow. Okay. This is a, a stunning example of, of what you're talking about, the power that a B2B marketplace can unlock in uh, markets that are, have frag I'm, I'm repeating from my notes here, fragmented supply, fragmented demand, bad communication, opaque pricing. And you, you guys have been mining this category, I take it. Absolutely. <laughs> We're spending quite a bit of time in this category. And sort of a variety or a variation on that theme is what we call industrial marketplaces. So marketplaces that are focused on specific industries. So we invested recently in a company called uh, Schrott24, uh, or Schrott24, which is a scrap metals marketplace in Austria, hmm. which has a lot of the same mechanics. Uh, Offline actors, old forms of communication, opaque pricing, um, and another great example of the B2B marketplace where you can introduce a lot of a lot of transparency and a lot of good for everybody involved. Yeah, and you know, people I mean talk about the you know unsexiest sounding market, scrap metal, right? Exactly. I mean it's probably a massive uh, global, uh, what, 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 are, what, what kind of numbers are we talking about here in terms of market size? And maybe you don't want to tell us. <laughs> it's massive. Okay. Uh, I don't know if I should. <laughs> no, uh, don't, let's not get into it. Uh, no, no, no. A number on that on the uh, No, no, let's not do that. Fly. No, no, no. But I, uh, we, we can use our imagination on that. And side note, you guys being global and having a global reach, you're scouring the earth for these kind of things, and uh, you, you, you know you found something amazing in Austria, of all places. Yes, we did. Yeah. Um, and this actually came out of one of our incubation efforts. So uh -huh. one of our EIRs, or entrepreneurs in residence, wanted to build something in this space. And as part of that work, did a mapping of all the players that he could find in different markets and that led to us investing in Schrott, uh, despite us not wanting to build anything in that category ourselves in the U.S. for a variety of reasons. Uh, we still think the investment we did in Schrott is going to be a very nice one. Very nice. Yes, and then we have a couple of other themes that we also oh. like. So one of them is what we call a supply pick marketplace. So if we go back to what I was talking about before with a horizontal classified site, you have a double commit marketplace. So I list something, you want to buy it, we talk, and we both commit to the transaction. And that introduces friction in terms of us having to go back and forth. It adds time lag. 
because it's usually asynchronous. So it becomes, it's a better process than it was offline, but there's still a lot of back and forth involved in making the transaction happen. And then the contrast to that is Uber. So when you want to take an Uber from Airbnb, you don't care if it's Mike or David who's driving the car. You don't care if it's a Ford or it's a Chevrolet. What you care about is that it's a safe driver who will show up on time in a safe car and take you from A to B. And because it's standardized supply, you can make it so that the demand side, the consumer who wants to drive the car, uh, or ride the car, I should say, just lists their request on the platform, and then whichever person on the supply side is first to take the job gets the job. There's no back and forth. You don't have to have both sides commit to the transaction. So it reduces the friction, which is a great tool in getting to liquidity. So going back to our earlier point, if you're going to build a new marketplace, you need to have some feature or some difference in your model that makes your model better than what already exists. Otherwise, people will just use what already exists. So simplifying the process, both for the demand side and the supply side, is one of those mechanisms that you can use. Got it. Fascinating. So an example of an investment that we've done in this space is a company called HomeTree out of the UK, which is a company building a supply pick marketplace for HVAC systems, so heating, ventilation, air conditioning systems, and for boilers. And if you think about that from a consumer perspective, if your boiler breaks down, it's not really important who comes to fix it. What's important to you is that it's someone who's qualified, insured, professional, shows up on time at a fair price. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, So as a consumer, you can list that demand on a platform that you trust And as long as you trust that platform, it's not important to you who on the supply side of that market does the job. I see. So that's a classic example of what we look for in supply pick marketplaces. Got it. Right. Fascinating category. Wow. It's a very fascinating category. And it it makes the transaction so much smoother and so much easier that it's just, it's a joy for the consumer to actually work with a model like that because it's so so painless. And let me ask you about that without diving into home tree per se, but in a, in a marketplace like that, supply pick, um, you still have the challenges as, as the founder of developing the brand. That's, of course, number one. But also... Absolutely. That's an important part of the trust. Uh, yeah, very, very huge. It's all about trust. And then um, the nature of that particular activity is not necessarily recurring. So we're, you know, people using Uber, okay, they're going to continually use Uber. But in this case, um, maybe your boiler breaks down twice in the lifetime of your home ownership, let's say. So that must be, well, without getting specific about home tree, but um, I guess you would call this just going back, this is a sort of a low frequency category you when you made the point earlier it's but probably it's a higher order value huh these boilers are expensive 
So it's a matter of, so it's probably worthwhile, um, despite being low frequency, but um, you still need to create awareness because let's say I own a house, I'm not walking around thinking what, you know, I'm not aware of marketplaces <laughs> in the event of, in the unlikely event, something breaks in my house. You see, you, how do 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 you overcome that? What's the marketing branding so, side of that? Right. So let me answer it in, from a slightly different angle. So whenever we look at a marketplace, whether it's a business-to-business marketplace or it's a supply pick marketplace or it's a horizontal marketplace, we look at the economics of it. So tying that back to whether it's high average order value or low average order value, high frequency, low frequency, what's important is not really which of those it is. What's important is that the economics of it work. So for instance... If you have a high-frequency, low-average order value marketplace, what's important is that your contribution on a per-order basis, so say, for instance, you have a $20 average order, you take 20% of the transaction, that's $4, um, and then you have some variable costs that you take out of that, and you end up with some contribution on a per-order basis before taking into account all of your fixed costs. Let's say that it costs you $20 to acquire that user. In order for the economics of that to make sense, uh, let's say you have a $3 contribution per order, costs you $20 to acquire them, then you need to have essentially seven orders before you pay back the cost to acquire that customer. Yes. So as long as you have more than seven orders in a reasonable amount of time, then you're making money acquiring that consumer. Mm -hmm. So what we usually like to see in order to have a marketplace that you can scale in a capitally efficient manner is that your contribution from a customer in the first 12 months is about two times what you pay to acquire them. So then going back to your question, in the case of HomeTree, where you have very limited recurrency, what you need to see is that your contribution from that transaction, which is, of course, in the multiple thousands of pounds, that your contribution from that is still more than twice what it costs you to acquire the transaction. And as long as that is the case... It doesn't matter that there's no recurrence because you make more than your money back on that one transaction. So even if it takes 10 years or 20 years or 30 years before their boiler breaks again, if you're still in business as that same marketplace, (laughs) you can acquire them all over again and it doesn't matter. Wow. I got you. That's the other layer. We're now getting into the other layer here that, that the lens that you guys put on this, right? Exactly. The, the contribution margins, the CAC, the LTV, the lifetime value, exactly. as they say, I see. And that those unit economics are critical. Those unit economics are critical. So that is part of the reason that we typically invest in companies once they are live in the market and they have some transactions going. Because at that point, we can see, okay, what is the average order value? Uh, how much does it cost you to process that order? leading to a contribution margin 
and then we can look at sort of your lifetime value of that customer relative to how much it costs you to acquire them. So we are very metrics-driven investors because these fundamental economics are so important when you build a marketplace. That's why you rarely will invest pre-product, <laughs> right? You exactly. need to see the evidence, right? Okay. Exactly. So we will invest pre-product in amazing founders and amazing concepts. It happens. Okay. Uh, but most of the investments that we make are once a, mod- once a product is live in the market and we can dive into these things. All right. It's, it's extraordinary. It, it, it's, um, you've specialized, you've developed deep domain expertise. Um, you've kind of scientifically, uh, biologically examined the phenomenon of marketplaces on the internet and you have a global scope and you juxtapose that against your your expertise and it leads to these uh, incredible companies in, in your portfolio you know not, not too many portfolios have you know like 10 10 to 12 unicorns sitting there it's no we've got we've got a fantastic uh, portfolio <laughs> so far and i mean there's a lot more in them so i think there's a lot a lot of unicorns that we haven't really discovered right. yet. We have high hopes for them, obviously, but uh, they're not there in terms of valuation yet. And I mean, the fact that we've built more than 20 companies over the years between the members of the team and invested at this point in more than 160 different marketplaces means that we develop this very deep expertise in this particular model. We've seen all the variations. We think about this every single day. Um, And we care about the nuances. We care about what makes all of these different models separate models catered or tailored to their specific market conditions. Um, And that's our bread and butter. Amazing. Amazing. We we could continue this for another hour, but I want to be respectful of your time. And uh, uh, can we can we get you back next year to to give us an update on on what's going on? Absolutely, would love to. Yeah, well, this has been great. Yeah, Arnie, this has been fascinating um, for me. I'm sure that for the folks listening, it's a real education. Uh, thanks for sharing everything with us, and uh, we'll talk to you real soon. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Dave. It's been a pleasure to be on. Show you around, give you a taste of the business, you know?